0: Going to be looking at this section that deals with women's conduct in the church. But let's pick up the reading at verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Well, after exhorting the men in every place to pray, he gives some particular exhortations to the women in the uh, congregation there at uh, Ephesus. And we kind of outline them this way, verses 9 and 10 deal with women's dress and their deeds. Verses 11 and 12 have to do with their demeanor and deportment in the assembly. 13 and 14 verses 13 and 14 give Paul's theological foundation for the position that he's presenting. And then in verse 15, you have somewhat of a summary, a summary statement concerning the lifestyle of a woman. Now, some of this is just a little review because it's been a while since we looked at this section. Concerning dress, Paul says that women should adorn themselves in an adorning manner. They should avoid showy or flashy or costly or immodest apparel. Uh, More importantly, they should realize that the best adornment is having a reputation for good works. A discreet self-restraint, a humble willingness to serve, a holy walk, these are the things that the Bible teaches give a radiance and a beauty to a woman which no outward apparel can possibly give. He then goes on to show another aspect of the lifestyle that befits a woman making a claim to godliness their conduct in the gathering of the church. So this brings us then to surely what is one of the most controversial and in some ways most difficult sections of this letter. This portion which concerns women quietly receiving instruction with entire submissiveness and along with that women not being allowed to teach or exercise authority over a man This is a section that's hard to interpret and in some ways even harder to implement in our day and age. In fact, in our culture, speaking on this section of Scripture is like walking through a minefield. You know there's probably going to be some explosions. Uh, Actually, I looked this verse up, this section up in... Uh, on the internet, which you know you get a diversity of thought when you get on the internet, one of the sites that did not have a very uh, a favorable view of the Bible said that verse twelve, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man to but to, but to remain quiet is probably the worst verse in the Bible. so here we go uh, uh, Actually, that's why last time I spoke, I tried to give some background uh, in the to the culture and the setting, and we'll do that a little bit more this morning, but uh, if you didn't hear the last message, I think it would be good to listen to it as you consider what I'm saying today. Uh, in a nutshell, I tried to show that uh, it's wrong to take a verse like this out of the context of the overall teaching of the Bible. You cannot just read this, this verse or verse 12 or this section and say, well, that's, that's the end of the discussion because you have a whole Bible that that verse was put into. So it's wrong to take a verse like this out of the context of the overall teaching of the Bible and also out of the cultural context in which it was spoken. We spent some time last last time I spoke in looking at the revolutionary teachings of Christ and his actions, how revolutionary they were in relationship to uh, women and the culture that uh, he was speaking into in the first century. Um, so, again, I'd say you have to... Uh, it would be best if you didn't hear that message to listen to it along with this one and... The one that will lord willing follow but this morning we want to deal specifically with these verses that we're looking at here uh, from verse 11 through 15 and so may the lord help us i'll start by saying that i think these verses do teach something quite plainly and that is that Paul is teaching that godly men are to lead the church. That's the sum and substance, I think, of what he's saying. By that I mean that men are to have the governing authority in the church and are to be the ones who give the authoritative Bible teaching in a church assembly. This teaching was not based primarily on the culture of that time, although the culture did affect what Paul was presenting here. There's no doubt some particular situation that brought forth the need for this exhortation there at that time at Ephesus. As I said a few weeks ago, I believe that it was very probable that some women were using their newfound freedom in Christ in ways that denied the basic authority structure and gender roles God had established in the church. These women were misunderstanding and probably misusing their new covenant covenant spirit giftedness we looked at some of those verses in acts talking about how the spirit would come upon your sons and daughters and they would prophesy this new freedom and empowerment in christ for women drew large numbers of women into the early church one historian put it this way one of the reasons that christianity grew so quickly in the first century after christ was that it was so appealing to women now You know, reading these verses today, would say, how could that be? But you have to put it in the context, you see, of what the the situation that Paul was speaking into. Uh, Here was a religion that taught that men and women were equally made in the image of God. That was radical. Men and women equally made in the image of God, equally redeemed in Christ. Also, women saw that the Christian the Christian church was a gathering of people built on love, not on selfish power and worldly status. They could see that amongst this, these gatherings of God's people. From the historical records of this time, we know that human sexuality had run amok in the Greco-Roman culture, and also male-female relationships were very unrighteous. Not all that different than today. You, if you read the history of that time, the accounts of that time—infidelity, divorce, incest, homosexuality, adultery, prostitution—these things were widespread. Uh, Paul's teaching was countercultural then, and it's countercultural now. So, the external cultural events confused the new converts. Christ and apparently some women thought that equality and redemption in Christ negated all role differences. There's people that teach that today. This misunderstood, this misunderstanding of their new freedom in Christ um, led them to think that there was no distinction between male and female leadership roles in the family, in the Christian family we're talking about, and in the church. So Paul wrote these words to Timothy to help him to deal with that situation in Ephesus at that time. But the basic teaching of Paul, the teaching he gives here is what you might call transcultural. It goes beyond just one particular culture. It goes beyond the situation there at Ephesus. It's something that we need to take heed to today. The way we know this is because, of Paul, because Paul appeals to the creation account in Genesis to justify his teaching. See what he does in verse 13? He gives, he gives his teaching and then he says, The reason is, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. So what I'd like to do today is just deal with these last three verses, then we'll go back and get eleven verses eleven and twelve next time I speak, hopefully. But to deal with Paul's justification or his foundation for what he was teaching in the first two in verses eleven and twelve. The first reason Paul gives for male leadership in the church is that Adam was created first and Eve was created later. Why is that important? I mean, the animals were created before Adam was, so maybe the animals should rule. I don't think that's the idea here, uh, just the idea of being created first. It's not simply that Adam was created first, but the fact that Eve was made later to be a complement and a helper to him. Which I think was the important point. I mean, people knew the account. When Paul said uh, it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, they knew very well those first chapters of Genesis. So, Eve was made to be a complement and helper to him. And I think that's really the important point. As it says back in Genesis, then the Lord God said, It was not good, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding to him." So man was made, Adam was made, but he said, and everything he pronounced good, but he said, here's something that's not good. This this guy needs a helper, Uh, he needs someone corresponding to him. So God gives his commands to Adam and Eve and gave Adam a companion to help him carry out these commands. This order of creation then is very significant to Paul. It shows that Adam was to have a leadership role, and Eve was created to be Adam's complement, or companion, helper. She was made from him, remember, taken from his side, to be at his side, to help, to help complete him, and to help him. Complete God's work in the world. As they function together as a unit, the two shall become one, one flesh, as they function together as a unit, each in their proper role, they would fulfill God's commands and bring glory to Him. So I think this is what Paul's thinking about here in verse thirteen, this fact that Eve was made as a helper. But we must be careful, careful about how we understand this word helper. Some might think that being a helper is an inferior position, as if women, the woman was made to be a servant to do whatever the man commands. That's not the idea at all. This word helper, in the Hebrew, it's E-Z-E-R, Azer, I think is how it's said. It occurs 21 times in the Old Testament and does not have at all the idea of inferiority. In two instances in Genesis, Azer refers to the woman Eve. In 16 of the 19 other instances, the word is used, it refers to God. So you know it doesn't have any inferiority type thing associated with it. Uh, Here's an example. This is Deuteronomy 33:29. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper. Azer, same word. He's your helper and your glorious sword. So the term cannot be said to represent some kind of secondary inferior position. If nothing else, we should glean from this that men need a lot of help in, carry, <laughs> in carrying out God's commands. To Paul, when men are functioning as, a teaching and governing, as teaching and governing authorities in the church, they're reflecting the character of manhood that God intended uh, for them to have and women should be reinforcing and uh, supporting men as they seek to take up their responsibility of loving leadership in the church. I think that's the the flow of, of what Paul is saying here. But back in the Genesis account, we also find out that men and women did not function in their intended roles because Eve was deceived and Adam willfully followed her into sin. That's what he brings up next in verse 14. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. So that's the second reason that Paul brings up that there should be male leadership in the church. And this is a difficult verse to know for sure what Paul means. Many godly commentators disagree on how to interpret this verse and also the one following in verse 15. Of course the easiest interpretation is that women are more susceptible to deception and therefore should not be leaders or teachers in the church. And that is the view that some people put forward. The problem with this view is that men are also very prone to deception. Uh, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one people are deceived men and women another problem is that paul in other scriptures allows women to teach other women and children and to prophesy in the church which seems unacceptable if women are especially prone to deception if they're not if they can't teach because they're prone to deception they shouldn't teach other women or children are be able to prophesy in the church. So that's a problem with that way of viewing it. So I don't, I don't really think that's what Paul is hitting at here. And there are two other main views that are put forward in relationship to verse 14. The first is that this verse is referring to the thought that Eve wrongfully took a leadership position in listening to the servant without consulting Adam and was consequently deceived into eating the forbidden fruit, and Adam followed her lead. In other words, there was a role reversal which was taking place. She led when she should have followed. Eve was deceived not because she was so prone to deception, but because she took the leadership position that belonged to her husband. So Paul would be warning that the tragic results... He would be warning of the tragic results that would result or come about when people abandon God's roles for men and women. So, this role reversal should not be allowed in the church or in the Christian family. That's the possibility of what he's saying there. The other position, which is often presented, is that this verse refers to the woman's kinder, gentler, Nurturing nature, which makes her less likely to draw a hard line when someone is teaching error and when relationships need to be broken off. This view would say that in general, women are more relational and accepting than men. Satan attacked the woman first because he understood this general aspect of how God created men and women. Here's how one commentator put it God gave man, in general, a disposition which is better suited for teaching and governing in the church. And God gave woman, in general, a disposition inclined towards relational nurturing, a relational nurturing emphasis that places higher value on unity and community in the church. Both emphases are, emphases are needed. But Paul understood the kinder, gentler, more relational nature of woman as something that makes her less inclined to oppose the deceptive serpent. This commentator then goes on to say that neither disposition is inferior or superior to the other. Each has its proper proper place in God's order. Since God created men and women to be different from one another, it's inevitable that that women will be better at some things in general, he's talking about, than men, and that men will be better at some other things. Again, this is kind of a general statement. Uh, To take a physical example, men, by and large, will be better pro-football players (laughs) than women, and women will be better at nursing and nurturing a baby, just kind of a physical aspect of what is being uh, presented here well you can probably think of some of the objections to these various interpretations and I can too and I'm not sure which one if any is correct I said this is a difficult verse Uh, but since we're dealing with difficult verses we'll go on to verse 15 But women should be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. The first thing we can do with this verse is to positively, it's nice to do something positive in terms of uh, nailing something down with these verses. We can positively rule out what it does not mean, okay? That's because we know that Paul what Paul teaches concerning how a person is justified by faith in Christ. We can be sure that Paul is not saying that women will be justified or have their sins forgiven because they bear children. We know for sure because we understand the the teaching that Paul had related to justification by faith. Um. Besides the fact that we, that this view would go against Paul's teaching related to justification, um, it would also mean that a single woman or a childless married woman aren't saved, which, of course, makes no sense. Uh, to give birth does not produce the new birth. To give birth does not give a woman a new heart. We know that's not what he's teaching here, that you're saved because you have a a baby. Paul is using the term salvation here not to refer to initial conversion and justification, but to living the Christian life. That's how he's using the word salvation. Uh, He's using it in a very similar way to what he uses it in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's talking about the ongoing salvation that takes place as we daily walk in obedience to Christ. So, what does this verse mean? Here are some of the possibilities. One interpretation is that this verse is not referring to eternal salvation but it is simply a promise to women that they will be brought safely through the process of childbirth. Even though Eve was deceived and sin, and God said that he would greatly multiply the pain in childbirth, nevertheless, women will be brought safely through the difficulties of bearing a child. The problem with this view is that many women, even godly women, have died in childbirth. This was especially true in the past. I read one estimate that at the time that this verse was written, one out of three women died in childbirth. So that really doesn't seem to fit too well. Another view, which is more common, is that women will be saved by means of the one great childbirth, the birth of Christ. In this view, Paul is thinking of the fact that uh, hes thinking of the fact that the childbearing capacity of women brought the Savior into the world. Well, you have to, you know, kind of do some leapfrogging in your thinking for that, which is why uh, one writer put put it like this. He said. If this was the writer's intention, if this was Paul's intention, he could hardly have chosen a more obscure and ambiguous way of saying it. In other words, he's saying, that was really way out there. Uh, Nevertheless, it has been put forward because Paul could have been thinking of the promise of Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. See how that fits in? Paul could have been thinking back to that Genesis account. Mary's child would destroy the works of Satan. Though the woman was deceived by Satan, women would nevertheless be the vehicle by which the Savior is brought into the world. So maybe there's some merit to that position. The most common view, and I think the one that makes the most sense, is that Paul is simply saying, that being obedient to the various tasks and roles that God has called women to, as they're obedient to those things, they will be working out their salvation. They will be saved and will experience the outworking of their salvation if they follow the normal and natural functions of being, fa- uh, functions of being a woman. Rather than thinking they should take a position of leadership in the church, they should embrace the privileges and duties of womanhood, which is, in general, exemplified by, by childbearing. Now what I'd like to do in relationship to that interpretation of that, that verse is read to you a rather lengthy quote from Elizabeth Elliot, Uh, us older people here know who Elizabeth Elliot is, but maybe some of you young people don't. So let me just tell you, she was the wife of a man named Jim Elliot, and he and four other missionaries were in the news back in 1956 because they tried to take the gospel into an unreached tribe in Ecuador, the Aka Indians. And all five of them were killed, all five of these men um, there in the jungles of Ecuador. Well, Elizabeth Elliot and one of the wives of, of another one of the men that was killed went ahead. Then after their husbands were killed by these Indians, they went into that tribe. Think of this, two women going into a, a tribe of killers. They took the gospel in, and many of those uh, Aka Indians were converted. So this was a courageous woman doing a very courageous thing. Well she wrote a number of books, some of them telling of the accounts there of Jim Elliott and later on her account of going in with these Indians. But she also later on wrote a book called Let Me Be a Woman. And these were notes on womanhood for her daughter Valerie. So just some thoughts that she wanted to convey to her her daughter. Actually her daughter was like uh, almost I think it was just a baby when she took, when she went in with this tribe so her daughter actually lived as a little baby until she was like three or four in this tribe of what some people would call savages. So anyway she wrote this. Elizabeth Elliot wrote this book, Let Me Be a Woman. And there's a chapter in there called Masculine and Feminine. And that's a, I just want to quote some things uh, from, from that uh, chapter. She says to her, her daughter, It was God who made us different, and he did it on purpose. He created male and female, the male to call forth, to lead, to initiate, to rule, the female to respond, follow, adapt, and submit. Even if we held to a different theory of origins, besides, as she said, even if we didn't have the Bible, we had some different theory of origins, the physical structure of the female would tell us that women woman was made to receive, to bear, to be acted upon, to complement, to nourish. Yours is the body of a woman. Again, she's writing to her daughter here. What does it signify? Is there invisible meaning to its visible signs? The softness, the smoothness, the lighter bone, the muscular structure, the breast, the womb? Are they utterly unrelated to who you yourself are? Isn't your identity intimately bound up with these material forms? How can we bypass matter, that is, the physical structure, in our search for understanding the personality? There is a strange unreality to those who would do so, an unwillingness to deal with the most obvious facts of all. Are you following her? Every normal woman is equipped to be a mother. Certainly not everyone in the world is destined to make use of the physical equipment, but surely motherhood. In a deeper sense, is the essence of womanhood. The body of every normal woman every normal woman prepares itself repeatedly to receive and to bear. Woman, uh, motherhood requires a self-giving, a sacrifice, a suffering. It is a going down into death in order to give life. Womanhood is a call, it is a, vo- it is a vocation to which we respond under God, glad. If it means the literal bearing of children, thankful as well for all that it means in a much wider sense, that in which every woman is, married, every woman married or single, fruitful or barren, may participate—the willingness to enter into suffering, to receive, to carry, to give life, to nourish, to care for others. So. I think really what she's saying is very similar to what Paul's saying in this verse. Women shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and self-restraint. Women who live out the roles God has given them will experience the outworkings of salvation in their lives if they continue in faith and obedience. Of course, this is not the only thing that women can do, but it's one of the main roles that God designed her for so that humanity could be fruitful and multiply. Just as a little aside here, let me say that I think this is where some of the modern feminists go astray. It's not that the, uh, there's not a lot of valid things they've brought up against how these verses have been taken wrongly. There's many things that they've seen as the injustice and uh, abuse that comes by taking these verses wrongly. But often what's presented does not allow a woman to be uniquely feminine. That's why... That's why Elizabeth Elliott titled the book, Let Me Be a Woman. Much of the uniqueness and beauty of womanhood is lost when you try to teach that men and women are virtually interchangeable. God didn't make it that way. It also brings, if you try to take that position of interchangeability, that there's no distinct roles, it will bring confusion and chaos to a society, and that's what's happening to our society right now. Uh, I could mention many examples of that, but I think you're aware of them. On the other hand, it is important to remember that women have many more possible roles that are, um, that are very important, uh, other than being a mother. If you read Proverbs 31, Uh, where a kind of ideal woman is described. remember this one guy said, I'm looking for a P-31. (laughs) And he wasn't looking for some kind of airplane. (laughs) Well, anyway, that woman that's described there is certainly not a weak woman that never leaves the house. Elizabeth Elliot wasn't like that either. Um, what what do we see there? She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She takes care of the needs of her family, which has to do with motherhood, but if you keep reading, you also see that she cares for the needs of the poor. and. She maintains her own business, and from her earnings, she buys land and plants vineyards." So this is you know, a very active presentation of some of the various roles and, and uh, occupations, things that can involve uh, a woman. She is wise and strong and dignified with a joyful attitude towards life. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And she is praised by him and by her children who appreciate her hard work and industry in many different areas. So, there is a wide range of activity for godly women, a woman who fears the Lord. And that's true also in the church. Next time, Lord willing, we'll try to understand verses 11 and 12 in more detail, how they were implemented in the New Testament church. And hopefully we'll see that some of the, we'll just look at some of the many important roles that godly women filled and could fill uh, in the church, including situations where women taught men and uh, some others, I think, surprising things that you you would never get if you just read these few verses in First Timothy. So, uh, I'll stop there. But, uh, this is to be continued. We have to, you know, I'm taking a long time on just a few verses here because I think they're so important in our day and age to come to a right understanding of this there's been a lot of wrong done and wrong uh, presentations of these verses they've been used in wrong ways so it takes time to really flesh out and fill out the the broader biblical presentation that we need to understand when we read a verse of these uh, section like this